the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Episode 50, we return to the idea of extracting and processing the resources we need to live on the Moon from the lunar regolith. That's a process called ISRU, In-Situ Resource Utilisation. Unlike soil on Earth, the regolith of the Moon has no organic material. It is largely made of sharp-edged fragments of rock and glassy beads. Elcross was a spacecraft sent to hit the moon with the idea that the impact would send up a cloud of material that could be analysed to find out if there was any water on the moon. Jared Sanders, as in-situ resource utilisation lead at NASA, gave this talk in August of 2020 on resource excavation and processing. I'm going to talk very briefly about ISRU and how we look at... Um dust and regolith, uh, talk a little bit about the knowledge gaps that still exist and the challenges and where we see ourselves going. From a very top-level perspective, the ISRU activities cover everything from prospect to uh, product in the end and includes initially resource assessment, starting from the global perspective down to the local um, on-site perspective. From a consumable production perspective, we are looking at two pathways, what we can get out of the bulk regolith, um, oxygen and metals. The other pathway is looking forward towards the water and other volatiles that uh, hopefully exist in mineable quantities in the permanently shattered craters. At the same time, to support both of those activities, as well as surface infrastructure uh, and um, human activities, we look at uh, surface construction and manufacturing activities, such as landing pads, berms, and such, um, leading to consumable storage and eventually onto customers. So from a very simplistic point of view, 
Um, we've broken down the moon into two primary resource uh, uh, aspects. One is the regolith itself, uh, recognizing that uh, over 40% of the regolith has oxygen in it um, through lots of different minerals. We recognize the two basic differences um, in the regolith, Mare versus Highland. And since uh, the Artemis program is focused specifically on the South Pole, uh, we are mostly interested in the Highland type materials. We do recognize that there are other uh, potential resources like pyroclastic glasses and the creep uh, uh, elements, uh, rare earth elements, um, as well as solar wind volatiles, but those take a, a lower priority. Um, what has gained the most attention from a resource uh, mining perspective is, is the potential for water. Um, the only true surface impact information we have is from Elcross. Lots of really interesting data as to where that water ice might be and other volatiles and, and uh, what concentrations they may be found in, but, uh, but as we all know, there's a lot more to learn. Unlike other folks, um, we, we have to embrace uh, and, and um, get involved in, in lunar regolith versus just trying to mitigate it. Small-scale demonstrations and a pilot plant, uh, as I'll discuss later on, um, look at making tens of kilograms of product to over 1,000-ish kilograms of product. Knowing the different processing rates, for example, one of the oxygen extraction rates typically can extract maybe 10 kilograms of oxygen for every 100 kilograms of regolith. And if water ice is found in 5% uh, uh, concentrations, then basically you can multiply uh, the product value by at least an order or two orders of magnitude to understand how much regolith we need to process. As we go towards trying to refuel descent stages to send back up to orbit for reuse or even you know, ascent vehicles and, and reusable vehicles, the amount of product starts growing. And there are commercial estimates that if we had tremendous, you know, lunar exploration and, and commercial activities, we're talking about, you know, thousands of metric tons of, of product. And so this kind of gives an idea of, you know, again, if you use those multiplication terms, how much material we, we will be processing over time. Construction is another interesting aspect. As we start building up infrastructure, we may want to start thinking about landing pads and berms and, and other roads for, for cutting down on the maintenance and, and wear and tear on our surface mobility aspects and such. Um, during the Constellation program, uh, we started to try to estimate how much material we might want or need to move over periods of time, and it's even significantly higher than some of the production rates that, uh, uh, and excavation rates that I mentioned for oxygen and water processing. So, so that also comes into play. So going back to the league, um, we, we have looked at, once again, what, are, what do we still need to know? Um, what's still valid? 
from that 2016 report. And these are the aspects that we are using to help drive our prospecting slash science needs as well as our, our hardware development aspects. Um, it includes primarily what's in the permanently shadow craters, but there are still, you know, non-PSR related uh, activities associated with understanding the regolith better at the at the polar locations, um, and even starting to uh, understand the volatiles that exist outside of permanently shadowed craters. Um, charging um, and uh, geotechnical properties, both in and outside the permanently shadowed craters, are also extremely important. Um, there was discussions about adhesion, and that will play into the design of our hardware as well. Um, in terms of our power systems, our thermal control systems, our, our mechanisms and such. So we have a lot of challenges um, still. Uh, we've broken them down into four major categories. There's the challenges associated with uncertainties about the resource. Does it exist there? Um, are there contaminants uh, that exist that we don't necessarily understand? And with respect to Mars, um, what are the planetary protection requirements? There's been discussion about um, keeping different parts of the moon pristine as much as possible. So that now may play into how we deal with finding and processing resources so that we don't have pig pen units churning up dust left and right. There are technical challenges um, in terms of the energy, life, and performance how dust and, and regolith degrades our hardware from a maintenance perspective and an operational perspective. There are environmental aspects, the microgravity or the low gravity on the moon, the extreme environments, radiation, low temperatures, um, the fact that we may not have continuous com, uh, com capabilities, surface navigation and such. And then there's integration challenges. Once we have these products, um, are other systems designed to take those products into consideration and use them? So, you know, how do we clean the water that comes out of a permanently shadowed crater so that we can electrolyze it or have crew drink it, for example? And so I'll end my conversation with the fact that um, we are looking at a lot of these activities from both a ground development perspective as well as a flight perspective. So. Um, on the ground development side, we're working on the technologies for both of those pathways, the oxygen extraction from regolith and the water mining, um, prospecting, and, and extraction uh, goals. Uh, we're initiating surface construction tasks as well. Part of that, as has been brought up, is, is the development of high-fidelity simulants. Um, as, uh, um, ground development units. We have started to look into flights. So you may have heard about Prime 1 and Viper. Those are our first steps into understanding the polar resources. At the same time, between 24 and 27, we're looking at flying maybe two or three demonstrations that will lead to a pilot plant by the end of the uh, decade. Okay, I'm done. NASA's Gerard Sanders. Just how might we go about finding water on the moon? It won't be 
by using a divining stick, as some folks do on Earth. This student at Penn State College of Engineering wants to use a laser called OASIS to produce a plasma that can be analysed spectroscopically. Hello, my name is Tyler Senja, and I'll be presenting Penn State's Student Space Programs Laboratory's work on OASIS. SSPL is an undergraduate research lab that aims to give students education and experience as well as contributing meaningful scientific research. SSPL's current project is the development of LIPS technology applied to the quantification of lunar water resources, which we've named OASIS. The ability to find and use water resources on the moon will be crucial to the long-term habitation goals set by the Artemis program, which aims to land at the lunar south pole where there could be pockets of lunar water in permanently shadowed regions. Laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy uses a laser pulse to induce a plasma from target sample material. The light given off by this plasma is collected by a spectrometer, where the spectra can be analyzed to determine the sample's elemental composition. OASIS uses a pulse 1064 nanometer laser to induce this plasma, and the spectra is collected using an Ocean Insight flame T spectrometer at a range of 30 centimeters away. We believe laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy will be key to locating and quantifying lunar water resources for a number of reasons. First, you can collect a large number of samples, with a very low cost per sample collected. Second, there is no need for mechanical collection of samples for analysis. There are no grabbing arms, buckets, shovels, or scoops. Just point and shoot at whatever you would like to sample. Finally, LIBS can sample the same point multiple times, producing a slight drilling effect that allows for a layered analysis of lunar geology. OASIS started last year. As I stated earlier, further work on OASIS will be focused on developing LIBS as analysis technique in general, and not just development of a payload. To start, some good news is that our laser was able to deliver the power density required to produce plasma in a terrestrial atmosphere. We're using a 10x Galilean beam expander and a focusing lens with a focal length of 30 centimeters to achieve this power density at 30 centimeters away. Another important item of feedback we received during testing was that our collection optics needed some serious redesigning. Spectra collected during testing contained no useful data, and we believe the most likely issue that caused this is misaligned optics. However, another possible issue is the focal length of our collection optics. We initially believed that collecting collimated light from the plasma would be enough to detect in a dark environment. However, we will be redoing our collection optics to instead focus on the actual point of ablation instead of staring to the distance and relying on the small amounts of collimated light. Once these issues are resolved and our instrumentation is working in terrestrial atmosphere, we will be able to run tests in thermal vacuum chambers at Penn State to achieve a low pressure environment which will be crucial to developing LIBS for lunar applications, where the effects of low pressure on the induced plasma present a number of challenges. Now, back to Gerard Sanders, who by August of 2021 had made further advances in developing a plan for in-situ resource utilisation. Included is the use of the CLIPS Landers, the Commercial Lunar Payload Service under which NASA will pay companies to deliver experiments to the Moon. From a current lunar um, ISRU development and demonstration plan, ISRU falls into the um, Space Technology and Mission Directorate uh, within NASA, and, and the work needs to fall into uh, four thrusts, go, land, live, and explore, and ISRU falls into the, the live thrust. Within STMD to, 
to further help focus specific areas of development, they've created the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative um, to, to discuss six areas in particular, ISRU and surface construction and excavation are other areas that are jointly tied. From an ISRU perspective, we have several steps that we are working on. The idea is to maximize ground development and then use flights, um, uh, particularly CLIPS, uh, to develop the critical information and, and eliminate risks uh, for full-scale implementation and commercialization. You know, so first step is know your customers and your gaps. And so we've spent a lot of time on that, uh, in particular working with the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium is, is ongoing. Begin the development on the ground of hardware and systems to raise the, the technology readiness level. Again, engage industry, academia, and the public through all of those different aspects, including challenges and such. Uh, use CLIPS missions. Uh, particularly to understand the resources, as was mentioned, also to obtain critical data that we might not have from Apollo, demonstrate proof of concepts, and then critical pieces of hardware. The idea is to take this to an end-to-end, -end, what we call pilot plant, where we demonstrate from the beginning to the end the, the process excavation, processing, and product generation. We hope to use those products in some kind of uh, uh, demonstration and, and by doing so, buy down the risk of full-scale implementation. What are the consumables or commodities? Again, the primary ones are water that might exist in the poles. There's a lot of uncertainty still, as was mentioned, but it does provide 100% of the propulsion capability or propellant mass that we might need, and it strongly influences where and how you might um, perform long-term surface exploration. Oxygen from regolith is also extremely important. Uh, over 40% of the mass of regolith is, is oxygen in different mineral forms. The technologies are, are potentially less risky than some of the, the water mining technologies. A little bit more is known about them. And when you look at propulsion systems, you still get 75 to 80% of the propellant mass by just making the oxygen. And we hope a lot of these technologies could be applicable to Mars as well. And then our third major uh, uh, commodity is, is the construction feedstock, whether it's just bulk regolith or refined. Uh, we're starting to look at metals and slag that might come out of oxygen extraction techniques, as well as chemical and biological processing to refine those products into plastics or, uh, or other items of interest. For the resource assessment, we kind of think about three phases all happening simultaneously to some extent. There's been discussion about the remote assessments. Uh, LRO is, is providing significant data to this day. We're looking at trying to perform some initial exploratory assessments such as Viper to get an understanding initial ground truths. But eventually, we're going to have to do very focused assessments of those resources at specific sites so we can start planning and mapping our mining operations. So when you look at what is NASA doing, it's doing a, a tremendous amount. So there are several uh, activities going on with respect to how you would acquire samples, understanding the physical and geotechnical characteristics of the regolith, especially in permanently shadowed craters, uh, mineral instruments, 
uh, in particular volatile characterization instruments, um, those that can heat up the regolith and actually drive off the volatiles and understand them, um, similar to what the SAM instrument is doing um, on Mars, for example. And then mobility aspects. How do we get our instruments into the different areas, the permanently shadowed craters? There's a number of different activities going on there. There is an X next to the electrodynamic dust shield on the Firefly mission in 2023, for example. So all of these things, um, even if they're not flying necessarily for a resource assessment mission, are demonstrating the instruments that could then be used later on. From an ice mining perspective, we are looking at where the ice might be and how that might influence our mining operations. One possible location we looked at, it's near the connecting ridge near Shackleton Crater. And so we wanted to understand if you put in a mining site there, what kind of traverse paths and and uh, you know how would you set up your power systems might be. We have just three different mining techniques, just the excavation and delivery to a centralized processor. We look at subsurface heating in a, a contained device such as PVEX that Honeybee has worked on, or others have looked at how you might heat the subsurface uh, and have the volatiles come out and, and be collected in some kind of a dome. And so there are several different activities going on in each one of those areas. For oxygen extraction from regolith, Dr. Larry Taylor's name came up earlier. He wrote a paper a number of years ago that I continue to use this day that talks about lots of different oxygen extraction from regolith techniques. We've tried to work on several of those over the years. Carbothermal reduction of uh, with methane is one. Molten regolith electrolysis is another. Those two have probably the most work. Um, but there's some other interesting work. Ionic liquid reduction, it's a kind of a acid type reduction. Using plasma hydrogen instead of just hydrogen reduction. And then there's always been the vapor pyrolysis aspects. The interesting thing is, is that we are now focusing on highland materials versus mare, uh, which is what we looked at during the Constellation program. And we're seeing some significant differences in the processing techniques. The last thing I want to, I think, mention here is the water processing. So, so whether it's mining water or, or some of the oxygen extraction techniques uh, make water as an intermediate product, um, we need to have water electrolysis and cleaning techniques and capture techniques. Um, we are funding, along with our life support and regenerative power folks, several different technologies in the three main branches of water electrolysis, proton exchange membrane, solid oxide, and alkaline. Um, alkaline is interesting because it might allow us to actually have dirty water versus having to clean out the water um, as much. Viper was mentioned. Uh, Prime 1 is a precursor to Viper. Uh, we're looking at two to three ISRU demonstrations that hopefully will lead to a pilot plant by the end of the decade. Uh, a lot of this is going on now. Uh, it's been mentioned um, shadow cam on the Korean Pathfinder orbiter, lunar trailblazer, and the uh, Artemis CubeSats are all going to help us better understand what's in the permanently shadowed crater, but LRO is that mission that keeps on giving. 
from a surface perspective, uh, Prime 1 and Viper, as a precursor to Viper, we're flying the drill and the mass spectrometer on a mission called Prime 1 to buy down that risk. Um, and then I think I'm going to end with just an idea to give you as to where we're heading. So when you look at the long-term um, commercialization, you're talking hundreds to thousands of metric tons of product. Um, we had a, a meeting um, with the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium, which basically said an initial mission might need something on the order of 10 to 30 metric tons. And so the work that we're doing now is to buy down the risk of that kind of plant. Uh, initially in the tens of kilograms, the pilot plant hopefully will be about a metric ton per year, plus or minus some percentage of operations. Oh, takeaways. There are significant challenges and gaps that we need to overcome still. Resource assessment uh, instruments are being uh, developed and missions are being flown, but we definitely need more, as, as has been pointed out. We are developing critical technologies for oxygen extraction and polar water mining, and we are working with our materials, structures, and construction folks. And with that, I'll bring it to a close. Thank you very much. NASA's Gerard Sanders. At Missouri University of Science and Technology, Leslie Gersh has ideas on how to extract water ice from the lunar regolith. Hello. Basically, I'll be talking about technologies that are designed to achieve certain capabilities. And the goal is, is to transform natural materials into materials that can be used in human endeavors, in this case, on the moon. To do so, these technologies that I'll be giving examples of uh, use current understanding of physical sciences and potentially also biological sciences as they are currently experienced by us in a very narrowly constrained environment of the surface of this one planet, the Earth. Effectively transferring these capabilities to other bodies like the moon means rethinking how we apply the fundamental sciences uh, that we're using in these technologies to that particular goal. A fundamental criterion for science applicability in extractive engineering is utility for separating the desired material from all the other materials that are found with it. And that also means taking advantage of natural segregation processes. And that's why we're looking at the poles of the moon. So although this presentation actually focuses on specific technologies, please be thinking about the capabilities that they are intended to achieve and how current technologies do so, and how the lunar and ultimately Martian environments can be used to do so in new ways. So each example that I give, now due to the short duration of the talk, I am only showing some examples of recent research. Uh, we're not talking about mineral bound or mineral incorporated feedstocks for water. We're talking only about water ice. Um, we're not talking about products other than liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. We're not talking about historical technology development, uh, even though it's very informative. And we won't also be talking about the specific science needs for achieving the desired lunar capabilities, which is a part of an important part, but only a small part of the science of space resources. Now, the examples I'm going to be given are divided somewhat arbitrarily into studies of systems and of major technology subsystems. All right, the concepts that we're going to be looking at here are 
typical of many, and they're being developed on a continuum from in situ extraction of the water to ex situ extraction of the water. There's a wide range of maturity in these examples, wide range of, of as I said, in situ versus ex situ. The talk is biased actually toward government, primarily NASA-sponsored research, and away from privately funded commercial research only because the latter tend not to publish quite so much. So it's, it's, there's a bias there, and I want you to be aware of that. There's wonderful research being done commercially, but it's not quite as available. Now we're going to go into, into the examples. This is a Colorado School of Mines concept of thermal mining. It's a very thoroughly updated version of a concept that's been around for a little while, but they've added some new wrinkles. Uh, they've got study teams focusing on various aspects of this mining method. It's primarily in situ, at least so far as the initial extraction of the water. There's a large transparent dome. Uh, you can think of it as a tent placed over surface ice deposits to capture the volatiles that are mobilized by energy beamed into that dome. Then they're, they're looking at uh, what, rate, what rates of volatilization can be achieved. This is a plume uh, that Maston, or a, a study that Maston is doing, taking advantage of the observations that rocket exhaust uh, has been shown to excavate regolith both on the moon and on Mars. Uh, recent Chinese landing on the far side showed that on the moon. Now this concept uses a manifold similar to the thermal mining concept, um, also with cold trap collection. The difference is that this concept could excavate to a potentially much greater depth. Process technologies, now many of these are being studied as part of the systems we've just looked at. And the approximate order in which they'd be applied is separation, purification, breakdown, which uh, was, I was asked to talk about electrolysis, uh, but there are other methods, and liquefaction. Purification technologies. I've listed some of the very basic um, approaches that are used for purification. Purification covers a lot of stuff. Um, impurities are things that can poison the downstream process, degrade equipment, shorten their working life, things like that. But Remember that impurities can also be byproducts or co-products as long as they don't interfere with a primary product, which is oxygen or hydrogen. Electrolysis is uh, one of, as I said, several processes. There's thermolysis, photolysis, but um, electrolysis generally has, is these days has four types. Thank you very much.